Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we ask the question, are you over-delivering? Mm. And why you shouldn't? <laughs> yeah. You want me to kick this one off? Yeah, sure. This just came in through your Instagram, I guess. Yeah. And I want to give a shout out to Tara McMullen because this is directly from her Instagram and post. And it just kind of hit me with a ton of bricks. And basically her question was, are you over delivering? And the premise is that um, a lot of times the over delivering reflects basically um, personal power dynamics right? Because we learn to justify our value to higher status people by going above and beyond. Like and a I boss just, employee. Yeah. And her article really talks about both boss employee and you know consultant client, but I'm focusing on the consultant client. But I've seen this so many times and I've even found myself doing it a couple times in the past. And I literally had to like stop, you know, kind of slap myself and go stop that right now. But it's where you feel like you need to over deliver, like maybe you have a prestigious client or you just feel like your client is your boss, which is, I think, what happens a lot when we first come out of like a corporate kind of role and you're solo consulting, you're like, oh, I have to do what they tell me. They're the high status person. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. uh. It is so funny when I talk to people about negotiating. So so people come to me and say, oh, you know, I sent this proposal and they came back uh, with these changes and, and which one should I accept? And I'm like... It, it, and it like doesn't occur to them that they could just accept none of them and walk away from mm-hmm. the deal. I'm like, yeah. well, are any of them good? None of them look good. They all look terrible. And the person's like, well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> you know, either they need the job or, you know, the money or they feel social obligation because someone referred them and now they're in this negotiation thing and, and they forget that they can just walk away. Like your, your clients yes. are a choice, just like your boss is a choice. But uh, yes. they, it's like they forget that that's one of the options. And then it's like, oh, I'm faced with these three, not terrible, but like substandard options. And like, oh, I guess I have to do one of these. And uh-huh. which one of these is the best one? And it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, no. I have to roll over and suck it up. Right, right. And I'm no. like, well, you could just you could just say no. You know, it's like, oh, I, you know, I considered your suggestions. I gave it some thought and I just couldn't make a business case for any of them. So if you want to move forward with the proposal as it is, let me know. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can frame it um, in the base of your authority. You could say, listen, if we take out this step, I can't guarantee the transformation that I want to. And therefore, I can't do that for you. If if that's really important to you, I'm not going to be the right choice for you. I, Mm -hmm. I can't take the job. Yeah. And you know, most of the time people will go, oh, I, I'm, I didn't realize that because you're explaining to them that this is an important part and it's part of how you guarantee your outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you could say, well, you can probably find someone who will skip that step, but I'm not that person. I, I think yeah. it will jeopardize the success of the project. I don't think you'll get, you know, who knows? I don't have a crystal ball, but I think the odds of you getting the business outcome that you desire the odds are dramatically lower if you skip that step. If you skip the blueprint, I'm pretty sure your house is going to come out bad. So you can probably find someone to start banging nails for you, but I I don't want to be that person. 
And so, I, and what I like about Tara's piece is that it really talks about status roles and power. So imagine for the moment that you're the, the guy that you just mentioned who goes, well, I guess I have to do one of these three things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to do it. And they do it. How do they feel about themselves, mm. right? They feel like they don't have power. They have lower status. And it starts to build, if you keep doing that, it can build, not only can build toxic relationships, but it impacts how you serve your clients and how you feel about yourself yeah totally because you're compromising well in in that example you're compromising mm, at least your professional ethics or professional standards maybe your values uh, how you see the world and you just you know and why are you doing it you're doing it for the money so uh, but well no maybe not i mean you're definitely doing it for the money but there could be also this sort of like you said, the sort of status roles is like, well, I guess I have to. Like there, the the client is the boss. The client's always yes. right, right? That's it. Because I think sometimes it isn't really about the money. It's you think you have to. I think that's mm-hmm. part of it. Is that Because it's just so ingrained, especially if you've been an employee and you've had a boss where you had to please the boss. Right. Yeah, the client's not the boss. Right. Yeah, I had a long, you know, I... I don't know when this will come out. I guess next week, but well, always next week. But um, yeah, I just did uh, the... Automatic proposals, a new workshop, and there's a, a whole lesson on negotiating. And the first thing I, I I say in that is, you know, there's a bunch of ways to hand. There's a bunch of specific lines you can use when the client puts you on the spot with like a particular kind of discount request, or you know, could we take a little bit of this option and a little bit of that option and turn it into something mm-hmm. else? And I'm like, and there's specific answers and ways to handle each one of those objections or those requests. But the big picture is no just say no like that's one of the <laughs> options it's always yeah. on the table right it's so if you're if you're new to negotiating for example and you're like uh, i don't know what to say just say no just say no well no thanks or you know, i think i already said it it's like it's like i i thought about it i took your suggestion i thought about it i can't make a business case so i'm going to pass but if you want to move forward with this you know let me know and know, if I'm, you just I've, remember I've, yeah go ahead no, I was just going to say, I also like, in, instead of just a direct no, I like to say, tell me more about that. I know that sounds like your favorite shrink talking to you, but <laughs> it does. Sometimes they will tell you stuff that you just like didn't know. Tell me more about that. Why is that important? Mm-hmm. And hear what they say. And maybe there's a workaround. Maybe there isn't. Maybe you just need to stand firm and no is the right answer. But I like to tell me more. Yeah, it could. That's one of the things I the Hail Mary approach I describe as I described in, in the <laughs> workshop is like is like okay you, evidently you didn't uncover the right stuff in the either either came up with a wrong guesstimate at what the project is worth or uh, whatever you're just off base or the things that you proposed aren't the outcomes that the client actually want you just you just need more practice at the why conversation so you can use the the rejection or the desire to negotiate prices as an indication that, well, I just screwed this proposal up and maybe I just need to write a fresh one, which is an option. I usually don't do it, but uh, if I, if I screwed up, then I'll just move on. But, but you can do that. Just like you said, it's like, well, could you help me understand Mm -hmm. like why this is, why you're, you're not willing to invest more and it seemed like a really big priority and, and you can uncover stuff and maybe find out who knows, like figure out where you got off track, what you misunderstood or what assumptions that you made and, and then say, okay, uh, forget about that proposal. I'm going to write a brand new one with this new understanding, and it'll have different prices. It'll have different scope of work. It'll have all. It'll be different. It's a different proposal. 
Yeah. So yeah. obviously I've got proposals on the mind, but it feels, it feels related. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, but the proposal is the dress rehearsal for the engagement. So if you, you know, if you're just kind of fawning and going, Oh, can I do this? Can I do this? You're going to keep doing that when you actually get the work. Right. And I like Tara's point is that when we do that, when we, you know, when we fawn, we people please, we over deliver, we're trying to prove our value to the people who we perceive as having higher status Mm -hmm. than us. And I'm just always going to argue that client up here, consultant down here is not good. It is not what we're looking for. It's you are, yes, we're serving. I do believe we serve clients, but we serve them through our expertise. We don't serve them by bowing down to them and genuflecting. You know, we we serve by meeting them where they are and helping them to get someplace better. It's, you know, I hate it when we use the word partner on websites. I I do too. I I don't know why I don't like that, but I don't. (laughs) Because every consulting firm in the world uses that to explain how they work with their clients. But if you think of it in an emotional sense, you are partnering with Mm -hmm. people. And if you don't want to partner with them, then you probably, you know, shouldn't take them on as a client. You really yeah. want it. You want to help them get to where they go. But that's how I look at it. Is is we're equal. We they they have the things they're great at that they're brilliant at. I have things that I'm great at, and you know, and we we use the best in each other to go forward. So it's an, it's more of an equal footing. It's not one up and one down in either direction. It's not like mm-hmm. the consultant is the is is the high status and the client is the low status. It's that we're we're pretty close to equal. Yeah, and when you spell it out like that, I mean, I suppose it will sound obvious, but I'll just say it out loud. The way to provide value to your clients is not to be obedient. It's to deliver results. Yes. So if they are telling you to do something that you, in your professional opinion, don't believe is going to produce results, then they're jeopardizing the engagement. They're jeopardizing the project. So it's, it is up to you to tell them no that's that I, I, you hired me because I'm an expert at mobile design and I'm telling you this is not going to work. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, so if you can be, and, and to your point about equals, they are the expert at their business. They, they started a $10 million yes. business, a hundred million dollar business. I am not going to tell them what their business strategy should be. I'm not, unless that's what they're asking for. I'm not going to mm-hmm. tell them what their customers are like. I'm not going to tell them anything about their product, probably, you know, in my engagements, I wouldn't be, those are not things I would focus on. I would be brought in as an expert for some kind of like mobile app or something. And, and then, and they would have veto power over that. Who do they want to reach? What's their strategy? Are they trying to expand? Do they want to move into a different language? Whatever. On my side of the fence, I get veto power on like user experience, page speed, the frameworks that are involved, you know, like all of that stuff, they don't get to tell me, oh, you should use React for this. I'm like, no, I'm not using React for this. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. like they're not allowed to backseat drive on the whole reason they brought you in. They don't get to backseat drive on that stuff. But it's still, but that doesn't mean it's not a collaborative relationship, you know, just because you're going to say, no, we're not using that color scheme, you know, if you're a designer, that's not going to be appealing to the people in your market and I can prove it because I did user testing with these colors and your clients hated it or your customers hated it, even though you like it, that we're not trying to please you. So here's proof that that is a bad choice. And we're going to go with these colors instead, because that's what I'm on the hook for. I'm on the hook for delivering the result that you brought me in for. I'm not here 
to be bossed around as a just another pair of hands. If that's what you wanted, you should have gone to Upwork. So, <laughs> but it, but it's still collaborative. Like the thing, like yes. people, a lot of times. I was just talking to a designer about this, and and it was like you know uh, she was brought in to do some social media marketing type stuff and and put together videos for you know like Instagram and stuff. And the question was, well, how many revisions should I give the client? And I'm like, why does the client want these videos created? Like, well, they want it, you know, one success metric would be lots of likes on the bit on the videos or lots of shares. And I'm like, okay, do they want likes or do they want revisions? They don't want revisions. They want likes. So don't give them any revisions. You keep revising it until they get the likes they want. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's still Mm -hmm. collaborative in the sense that it's still collaborative in the sense that they get to say what they want. They get to say what their success metrics are going to be. They get to say, I don't know. Well, all the, I already said it, like their strategies and what their intentions and their goals. And you get to help them reach that in however way you think is best based on your area of expertise. It's like being a doctor. You don't get to tell the doctor how to do your triple bypass or that you even <laughs> need a triple bypass. Like, like you don't right. get to say, oh, I need a triple bypass. Okay, great. Yeah. Hop up on the table. <laughs> Like the thing happening. is, though, that I think we that we forget is until you experience it the first time and then you, it starts to dawn and then the second and third time it starts to really sink in is that clients actually love it when you say no. Now, bear with me for a second. They don't always love it in the moment. But what they appreciate is that you have a point of view and that you're protecting them. Mm-hmm. They appreciate yeah. that. And like I said, it doesn't happen in the moment. Like, what do you mean you're not going to do that? I'm the client. You need to do that. And you say, no, this is why we're not going to do that. And let me explain. Let me just remind you of the goal we have here. And you, mm-hmm. you know, you have that conversation and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah. But the, you know, I go back to your proposal as a dress rehearsal for the assignment. So that's the time when you don't want to be just rolling over and saying, oh, yes, we'll do that. Oh, yes, I'll do that. Oh, yes, I'll do this. That's where you really get the chance to let them preview what it's going to be like to work for you and that you are protecting the ultimate outcome that they are hiring you to create. Right. Yeah. If you let them push you around in the sales process, it should come as no surprise when they push you around on the project. Yeah. It has to, you set that expectation right up front because if you, if you do push back in the, however you do it, it, it could even just be having the why conversation in the first place and questioning their request. And presenting yourself as someone who's really thoughtful about getting them where they want to go and not just doing what you're told. Mm-hmm. So if, if, they, if they like that, I always say, like, like when you say to someone, when you pivot in the sales interview, when they, you know, they brain dump, and you're like, this is great, we've got five pages of notes, can we back up so I can get the bigger context because there are a hundred ways I could solve this and I don't want to paint us into a corner. I want to make sure that we're gonna, I'm going to get you where you want to go which has surely not been shared at that point. And good clients will love that question. They'll mm-hmm. sit back and they'll be they'll get all expansive and be like, oh, if we could, you know, they, bad clients. They put their arms out and yes. yes. Yeah, the body language changes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right, the whole tone changes. The pit, That's where the pivot happens. When you when you present yourself as a partner, you know, when, when all of a sudden you're a peer <laughs> and the bad clients will lean forward and be like, what do you need to know that for? Or you don't need to know that. Just give us a price. They're, yeah. they're clearly going to be bad clients. Yeah. So, right. So, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So the dress. I love the framing of it's a dress rehearsal for the for the project. Yeah. I mean, I just keep coming back to that. I think the thing that really resonated for me with with Tara's original piece is that um, 
is her her ending argument, which is over delivering deflates your value. Mm-hmm. And what you offer is literally worth less. And if you think about that, like, so you could, you know, you have this hourly um, person, there's still probably some listening here. And so you could say, well, if I work more, I charge more. Probably not. You're probably going to wind up writing off some of the time. If you've got a flat fee, which happens a lot with coaches in particular, and then we over deliver. And before you know it, what looked like a really great flat fee actually looks pretty bad relative to the amount of time that you're spending. So mm-hmm. it's that I just think that this is, yeah, it's about boundaries. It's about status, but it's really about protecting not only your vision for the outcomes because you're building a body of work here, that but too. it's also mm-hmm. protecting your how you feel about yourself because the more that you consider yourself sort of low status relative to clients, the more, the lower you're going to go, the worse you're going to feel about it, the less fun it's going to be, the more drudgery it will be, the more toxic your relationships with clients will be. Right. And and it's like, and that's a downward ratchet that you see on a website like Clients from Hell, where certain, like, like a, a giant chunk of, of, the sort of online freelance community, it just thinks all clients are awful. Yes. Right? Yes. It, yeah. Right? I don't I don't get a lot of those folks in, in my communities. I don't know why. I guess there's some there's something I do that doesn't that filters those people out. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But there's a huge community of people just eye rolling. All clients are stupid. All clients are mean. All clients uh, want the lowest price. And I'm like no, no, not all the bad ones do. <laughs> yeah, that, that's like <laughs> a, that's like ones. a chorus. Yeah, that's like a chorus you just can't participate in. Yeah, right. It's it's a form of of um, well, n- never mind. Commiseration. <laughs> Let's just say commiseration. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I was I was doing a tweet chat with a group of people that were kind of saying that. Like I said, you know, what percentage of your clients are? Do you feel like you're doing your best work with, and you're doing all this? And like somebody said, like none. And, you know, and the problem is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So Mm -hmm. I just believe we, you know, spend the time to figure out exactly who your dream client is. And it's probably going to change as your business grows and morphs and you change what you like to do. But always be clear on who that client is and go after those like the last bus of the night or try to (laughs) appeal to them. Right? So they come to you. But I mean, ignore these bad clients. Who needs them? I don't want them in my space. I don't even want to talk about bad clients. Yeah. 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 It's like, oh, no, they might come in. I get their, their nose, uh, you know, under the door somehow. No, no. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And, and that's the, it's that collective sometimes when you get into a collective of people that are ranting. And don't get me wrong, we all need to rant. Jonathan and I rant to each other usually, at least for like a couple minutes every yeah. Tuesday. Um, but you, you just get it out and you move on. To be constantly, to have that rant constantly in your head is mm-hmm. not going to help you. You've got to find the great people that you associate with, not the people who just think everybody's bad. Right. And the, and I think the way that it ties into over delivering is if you've got these sort of toxic clients who just seem really demanding and and you know you wake up in the morning and you just like open your inbox like through through squinted eyes hoping that there's no all caps (laughs) subject line screaming out at you like 
then and then you're kind of like in this uh there's this temptation to write off hours or or software developers have this thing called gold plating where you add stuff in that nobody asked for you know you're like oh Oh. but it would be so cool if it did this and it's like no one wanted that and now we have to maintain that code so you know take it out insidious oh yeah it is it's it's even worse this the software developers listening will know what i mean um when you are just you just spend weeks refactoring stuff because the code's not elegant enough or because it, this mm-hmm. is going to be hard to maintain or this is going to produce technical debt like all of those things are true but sometimes for example technical debt sometimes it makes sense to take on debt right in in mm-hmm. the financial world but also in a software project like if you if there's a like a a window of opportunity that's slamming shut it's like you just hack your hack and slash your way to an MVP and you publish that thing and once you get you you clear the window, then you can have anybody go back and refactor it if you really want to. So anyway, there's different different. It's kind of like the bad grammar episode. It's like sometimes you want to you want to break the rules. Sometimes you will refuse to break the rules. You know, if you think if you're just not going to work on that kind of project, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But you know, over delivering isn't. I, I feel like in situations where you've got these bad demanding clients where over delivering to keep them off your back is a common reaction and then then they're like oh if i just keep yelling at this person they'll just keep giving me things for free so you know wash rinse repeat yeah there's also the other though there's the over delivering out of a sense of purpose and i once ran a group of coaches and career consultants and the, when i say career consultants they were kind of like coaches they their biggest joy came from helping torpedoed corporate executives find their next work and it was really really amazing rewarding work um, but what would happen when I took over the the national practice is I would go to visit these offices and I learned they were crazy over delivering because the way that the, the contracts were sold, these were Fortune 500 companies spending millions of dollars on these contracts. It would be, you know, the gold package is 10 hours and the silver package is five hours and the bronze is three. And they would routinely deliver two or even three times the number of hours that had been purchased. And <laughs> when I started talking to them, I didn't understand this. You know, I, it, I, it was all very fascinating. So I would go around, I was trying to figure out why the numbers weren't working the way they should be. Mm-hmm. And as I'm listening to people, I, you know, I got it. But the, the beauty of it was, it wasn't a one down thing. It was just the opposite. It was that they were so wanting to help their client, to meet them where they were, to get them to this better place. And they felt constrained by the deal. They felt constrained by the hours and they felt that they couldn't impact the hours and they could, but it was complicated and they were actually right. It was hard for them to, to, to do that. But it was, and so I started to watch after I had that job, I started to watch coaches in particular and I found it's not uncommon. Even when the coach negotiates the terms of the deal, they're so wired to help to get people to this other edge that they routinely over deliver. So, so this brings up a really, really interesting rabbit hole about what are you delivering in the first place? So like those coaches mm-hmm. that sold the hours, they sold the wrong thing. And yeah, they knew of course it. they did. They, they inherently knew that yeah. the hours are irrelevant. 
So what? So when it when it gets to this goes back to the like you know obedience doesn't produce value, right? <laughs> like doing what they told you to do isn't going to produce value. Giving them results is is if you want to demonstrate value, it's not like be obedient. It's like produce value, deliver results. Yeah. So in the case with with the uh, coaches that you just said, it's like. Or, or even when you think of the concept of over-delivering in general, I think I think people who are likely to fall victim to this, what does over-delivering mean? It probably doesn't mean, uh, you know, exceeding the client's success metric for the project by an extra 100%. That's probably not what they're thinking of when they think of over-delivering. When they think of over-delivering, they're probably thinking of more deliverables, more inputs. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put more time into this because I'm not reaching or I don't even know what the desired outcome is. So that that's one, like, in other words, over deliver, like you're delivering more of this thing that isn't actually inherently valuable to the client. Like your time's valuable to you, of course, but you know, if, if somebody spends a hundred hours working on fixing my brakes on my car and after the hundred hours, they're not fixed, those hundred hours are not valuable to me. Like mm-hmm. the brakes don't work. So the car's useless. So like the hundred hours are worth nothing. In fact, they're worth less than nothing because now I didn't have my car for a hundred hours and someone else who knew what they were doing could have been fixing it in one day. So if people are over delivering in terms of, of, of providing more inputs and, you know, I was supposed to write a white paper, but I wrote two for them. You know, that's okay. But all of that stuff is a means to an end. If you're over delivering, I'm all for over delivering on the success metric right so if if the success of the project is i don't know increased revenue by 50% and oops i increased it by 100% i'm totally no fine problem. with that right but i don't think that's what people are thinking of they think they're thinking of their inputs when they're delivering more air quotes but they're not actually delivering anything in terms of results well and with coaching i mean i'm thinking of this particular group of coaches um it's it is time and it's because the the person, some people get a new job really quickly. They're resilient. They bounce back. And other people don't for a variety of reasons that are not all intrinsic to the person, right? It can be the situation. And so the consultant slash coach is like, oh, I've got to kind of stay in touch with them because I'm worried they're just going to go you know, down the drain if I don't like make sure that they get that job, even though they've already delivered under the terms of the contract. Right. And again, that's a big firm. So that was a Fortune 500 company, very specific contracts, hours-based contracts. We all agree those are stupid, yeah. um, but it was it was the contract, and it it was fascinating watching them. And I've noticed that with uh, with individual, you know, independent coaches as well. It's because you're, you want that, your coachee to get to where they need to be. And sometimes, you know, it it's, takes more time than you thought it would. Um, that's, that's different to getting to the outcome. The over-delivering is, let me be there for their every waking moment and their every possible need versus the two or three levers that you can really hit that are going to get them to the outcome. Mm-hmm. That's a, yes, I think that's a good way to frame it. It also so another thing just popped into my mind that's very much related. I think so. There's this concept of selling to your own wallet, where um, sometimes when I'm working with folks and they they have been delivering tons of value to their clients, but they haven't been, but they've been capturing like way too little of it. So they very mm. small 
very small margins. They've probably been working hourly or dramatically underpricing their, even if it's fixed fee stuff, like dramatically underpricing their services. And and you just look at the results they're producing for their clients. And it's like, it's like you could triple your fees. And, it, and if you continue to produce these, produce these kind of outcomes, people line up mm-hmm. to pay you. I don't think yeah. everyone needs to raise their prices. There's this like always this mantra of charge more in the freelance community. I don't I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think everyone all you have to do is just raise your prices. But if you are delivering ridiculous like v- amazing results and your prices can they can be too low. So you can raise them and this psychology can kick in in a scenario like that where the person the seller who has now doubled or tripled their fees on like their next proposal or whatever. Uh, and and the deal closes. Lo and behold, I told you, like, like there's t- plenty of margin here for you to take a little bit more, and still the client has a home run, and yeah. and then they like got paid two or three times more than they're used to getting paid, so they feel guilty and they put in <laughs> like extra hours and do extra stuff to feel like they're earning the money instead of it's yeah. like, look, no, you're an expert at this. You became you can you can hit home runs with a, one hand tied behind your back. You don't, you don't need to, you don't need to make it hard on yourself. It's like, it's easy for you to do this because you, over 10 years, mm-hmm. you built up the expertise to do this specific thing for this specific kind of person. And they're happy as a clam. It's like, if you did it in one hour or 10 hours or a hundred hours, they prefer the one hour because then they get the results faster. So anyway, so this, 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 there can be this like, well, geez, I got paid $50,000 for a week of work or a week of hours like it seems like it doesn't seem fair i'm gonna i'm gonna do more it's you know yeah. cut it's, into it's a total profits. mindset shift yeah and you know by the way if somebody's in that space where you're just like I, I can remember the first time it happened where i started to get money that was not so related to time and i'm like whoa yeah. I got to do some more work. Right, I gotta, exactly. I, okay, what am I going to do with this? I have this free time. I have this money. This is really cool, but I better be working harder. Um, do some reading about you know money mindsets and the, the invisible scripts that we tell ourselves around money because a lot of that is related to this and get past the guilt because that's what you're going for. That's why you build authority to begin with is so that you can get to this other side where it's not time equals money, that you can start building you know, the new wealth, which is money, time, and flexibility, right? It's your I- ideal, optimal balance of those three things, but you got to get out of your own way to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it's easy for you to hit home runs, there's no reason for you to make it hard on yourself. <laughs> like make it right. harder. Right. Yeah. But we ha- we have this, you know, maybe it's the Puritan work ethic from way back, but it's we just have this belief that we have to work really, really hard for every single thing. And sometimes you don't because mm-hmm. you've put in the work already and you can actually sow the results. Yeah. You've created leverage, right? If you, it, it's, yeah. like, it's almost like, it's almost like you built yourself a chainsaw and and, it, and you're like and it cuts down trees so easily that you feel like you're cheating so you don't turn it on you just rub it on the tree like a regular saw <laughs> there's a visual right it's like it's like no you spent a year building a chainsaw so that you can cut down trees way faster so yeah. it's the same kind of thing it's like yeah. when when the if you cre- once you create the leverage 
and you get that like making money while you sleep stuff where you've got product sales or you've got productized services that you're that you could do in your sleep you're so good at it and they're so re reliably produce positive outcomes for the kind of people who you're trying to attract and you're just like geez this feels too easy mm -hmm. yeah you know and it's like and yeah if i'm gonna make money it has to be hard yeah if you right so if like like if you feel like you're doomed to a life of toil, then okay. I mean, th that's, I don't know. That doesn't seem like the real wealth. Like you just said, it's like, you know, don't you yeah. want autonomy? Don't you want f like financial freedom and flexibility in your schedule and all that yeah. stuff? Yeah. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, yeah. Yeah. There's a phase where you're creating the leverage where it's a ton of work, but once it's done, enjoy it. Like you built the chainsaw, start that puppy up. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's the it's the guilt. Yeah, I was raised a Catholic. I always call it my Catholic guilt. And so it's yeah, the guilt doesn't have a place in business. This is about you know really leveraging what you have and finding the work that you really love, and and not playing these status games, which is what we started with. Um, right. You know this idea of over delivering and and status and creating relationships that that don't work for you mm -hmm. yeah it's a beautiful place to be on the other side of that <laughs> it is and it's i think that's why it's so easy for us to talk about because we've both been there i mean mm. i just think about some of the years that i spent you know working 60 80 hours a week on the road and i'm like you know nobody's gonna do that today yeah nobody's yeah it's like no the other side is so much sweeter right i wonder i wonder there's a lot of there seems to be in, in the Venn diagram going on in my mind here about this, the hourly billing and over delivering is like, um, that's an intro. I should drill into that more with my regular students because the, there's, a, there's, I think a psychology there that I, before we talked about this was not obvious to me, which is over delivering increases your bank account when you are assuming you're charging mm -hmm. for it. So yep. So, and I, I guess I knew that that's where gold plating, a lot of gold plating comes from the fact that it's like, well, I get to like play with this code and make it perfect and pristine, even though no one actually cares or values that they probably should, but they don't. And yet you made them pay for it because it mm -hmm. was by the hour. And then when you switch to fixed, that behavior of wanting to futz around with your code until it's, you know, so beautiful, you could print it out and frame it on your wall, <laughs> that behavior, it, I can th I can think of at least a, one really big example, but I'm sure I have several examples of someone who first switched off of hourly and did their first, you know, fixed price value based project, and they didn't get the memo quickly enough about not doing that. So, mm -hmm. so instead of that behavior, which is a hard one to break, it could be a very hard behavior to break, where you're just like, oh, this code needs to be perfect. It's like, no, it doesn't. It needs to it needs to be uh, good enough to get the results that they wanted. And I'm not saying write, write bad code because I know even <clears throat> bad code from a really good developer is still really good code. Um, is it perfect? Nah, probably not, you know, but whatever. It's like, is if it's delivering the results that the client wants, it's good enough. And if you ask them in the, well, I'm going to, I'm going to weigh down a software rabbit. This, you just open up a whole <laughs> software rabbit hole for I, me. Well, and I'm sitting there going, what's bad yeah, code? What are what's you talking about? Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I, I was actually really curious about the definition and I suspect it's subjective, but. But it is subjective. It's like buggy or tough to maintain. They're all the technical debt is the, the umbrella category where you write code really fast that has lots of, you know, without. In a, in a sort of non-thoughtful way. So you just kind of frame up the application crazy fast. 
and and you know, what I, I could go into it like the code's not dry and you know, it's all super duper technical stuff but it's just going to be a pain to deal with forever and ever amen unless you go back and it'd be like imagine a, in a house that was like framed really sloppily and the the studs are close enough together but they're not the same distance apart from each other so forever you're going to have a pain hanging pictures because you mm -hmm. don't know where the studs are or you know they're not the right width for a standard sheet of drywall so anytime you need to replace a wall then you gotta like cut you're wasting drywall it's like it's just yeah. like a bad it's Little a bad things. idea but if you needed the house in three days there was a reason that it went flying up like that gotcha. so anyway anyway not to not to bore people <laughs> but you, yeah you really opened you tore a tore a black hole like rabbit hole <laughs> in my mind of like oh right because there's that futzing behavior that needs to go away because once you yeah. go fixed price, every hour you work is is money you lost. Where bef the day before, every hour you work was money you gained, and they don't you know, they don't always get that right away. I, I saw that behavior in my my one month VA, where uh, you know she was right out of corporate, you know, basically first second clients, and it's just like whatever time it took her is what she wrote down, and what she charged, and like stuff that just doesn't take time for somebody who knows what they're doing, but was charging at this high end. So she never understood that her model wasn't workable. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, Because I'm going to do everything possible because I don't want to make a mistake. And I don't think it was done in a way to like screw the client. It was like, I want this to be perfect and I don't know this software. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And hey, I'm charging by the hour. So I'm just going to charge the client for all that time. Yeah. Right. No, that was a uh, one month VA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hourly punishes expertise, but it rewards, I don't want to call it ineptitude, but it, record, it, it rewards not knowing what you're doing. Yeah. Inefficiency at the best. Yeah. Inefficiency, right? Yeah. So how does this take us all back to over-delivering? We, man, we've come at this from a few more angles than I even thought I of know. Before. It was funny because we were at like 12 minutes, I think, and I'm like, there's no way we have a half an hour on this <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's there's a, there's a lot going on here. There's like there's yeah. so much psychology and there's and like the customer is always right and you know wouldn't it be wouldn't it be better to give them more than less and it's like no it really yeah. wouldn't. Yeah, it's like a very slippery slope. Mm -hmm. And I the reason I think I that I liked the piece that it drew me in and I actually like slid over to the second slide is this idea of the status roles. Because I really, I've, I've seen that a lot in consulting with independents who've never consulted before. Like when you're inside a consulting firm, they teach you arrogance, right? I mean, you have to like <laughs> consciously work to not be arrogant in a lot of big firms. And, and I'm not saying everybody is. I'm just saying there is a culture that rewards arrogance in many of the big firms. And so you walk out and go to independent and, and, you know, and you understand that you and clients are on equal footing. You get that. But if you've always had a boss, and especially in a very traditional, rigid, hierarchical organization, you're used to taking orders, you mm -hmm. know, and, and this is different. And so I think it's so insidious that I, I just, I, I, I applaud her article for calling it out and I wanted to amplify it here because you don't want to do that. You are a professional. Even if you're just starting out, you still have knowledge, you have some expertise and how you use that is going to dictate the future 
trajectory of your career. So, you know, you're equal. Mm -hmm. This is not that you are subservient. Right. Yeah. And if you're, if you're a people pleaser type, which probably a lot of service people are, Mm -hmm. just think more long-term about your people pleasing, right? So your, your desire to please the client. So the desire to please the client in the moment is I think what a lot of people do when they're over delivering this client says uh, jump and you say how high, but in the long term, in the overall project, if you know that taking their request and doing it is going to jeopardize the long term success of the project and you're a people pleaser, then you can use that as armor to say, I would love to jump like you just told me to, but, but I'm a people pleaser and I want this project to be a success. So I can't do that because the, in the long term, in the short term, it might make the client happy, but in the long term, it's going to make them sad because the project's going to go over budget or it's going to fail or it's going to get canceled or it's not going to get where they want it to go or the results that it that produces are going to be lower than targeted. So just think if you, if you, if you consider yourself a people pleaser and you just think, well, I want to please this client in the big picture, not the small picture, because you can't yeah. have both. I, I like that, you, you know, use your tendencies for good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> of, of both parties, right? You and the client side. Yes, yes. All right, Jackson's telling us it's time for his walk. So. I know, I'm, I'm, I've got my hand behind his ears hoping he'll stop shaking. Sorry, guys. <laughs> that's, that's all right. Cool. All right, well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And I hope you join us again next time for The Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, I almost said... And I'm Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he has a voice, you know. Is that right? A very particular voice, yes. I'm Jackson, the Wonder Dog.